You've downloaded NewsHour Extra, one hour of discussion on a single topic every week. And this week we've got the topic of big data, micro-targeting, and are these companies that now have all the information that we give them online using that material to influence the way even we vote? And it's an absolutely fascinating discussion. And Robin Banerjee, you came up with this idea. I did, because I read a long piece, several long pieces, and began thinking to myself, well, actually... You know, I didn't really know that much about it. I knew that Trump had been interested in a lot of digital information. I knew he'd spent uh, less money than Hillary Clinton. But then I began wondering, so how did he do it? And now, actually, I begin to understand how he did it and how these companies do it. And as you'll hear, there there are two sort of aspects to this discussion. The first is this micro-targeting. So with ever greater precision, working out who thinks what and predicting people's attitudes. And then there's the question, can you manipulate them? Can you persuade them, manipulate, or whatever, control, whatever word is appropriate to do what you want them to do. Yeah, so apparently on relatively small amounts of information, we can make very good predictions now on uh, how people are going to behave in the future because apparently how we behaved in the past is a very good predictor of how we're going to behave in the future. So once you know all this stuff, then when you're also in a situation where people's information can be controlled, then you can not only predict maybe you can also control. Yeah, and we've got a a tremendous panel, so let me uh, just introduce them now. Michael Kaczynski, professor at Stanford Business School. He's pioneered some of these techniques being used now related to data and psychology. Birgitta Johnsdottir, an MP in Iceland for the Pirate Party. Tamsin Shaw, who's a professor at New York University, and she's written on these issues just recently for the New York Review of Books. And here in London, we've got Greg Beals, who was Director of Strategy and Planning for the last Labour Party leader in the UK, Ed Miliband, and he says he worked for Gordon Brown and Tony Blair before that, although he's now moved on to the more commercial world and is using some of these uh, techniques there as a customer rather than as a practitioner, but we'll talk about that later. But let's just try and be specific about this. There's a company that we'll hear about in this programme called Cambridge Analytics who says they've got four to 5,000 data points, pieces of information, about virtually every American citizen. I mean, it sounds absolutely extraordinary. Michael Kaczynski, can you help us with that? What information would that be? First of all, it's not extraordinary at all. There's a huge number of companies that offer such huge databases that span not over many thousands of data points, but also many millions of people. And those databases can be purchased with your credit card in a few seconds online. So it's not only this one company that has so many data points on many millions of individuals, but you and me, we can just, after five minutes of of, uh, exploring the internet, we can be in a possession of such database as well. What's really interesting, and not everyone really gets it intuitively, is that databases of this kind, they can be then analyzed using modern algorithms to infer even more information. So let's say that I've bought your credit card statement or I bought the list of the songs that you uh, listen to on Spotify or any other online audio platform. Now I can use this data to extract additional information about you, like your political views, your personality, your intelligence, your preferences, including very intimate preferences like sexual preferences. And all of this information can be gleaned from something as seemingly innocent as your music playlist. Yeah, but I think at the beginning of that answer, you said this is not at all surprising. But most people will be utterly appalled by that. Well, that's that's true. And I think it shows how 
poorly informed the general public is about the modern markets trading in data. So if you look more closely at the services and products that you're using online, you would realize that many of them are free. Your Facebook is free. Your credit card is free. In fact, many credit card operators would pay you for using your credit card. Your YouTube is free. Your Google is free. Now, there's no free lunch out there. If you're not paying for the service, you are the product. Now, this is the case, for instance, uh, when it comes to credit card companies. They see themselves today not as financial companies anymore. They see themselves, and you, everyone can see that just by going to their website, they see themselves as consumer insight companies. They gain those insights by observing our transactions as we go through our lives and use our credit cards. And then this data is being sold to data aggregators that then buy the data from credit card companies, from entertainment companies, from online uh, web uh, browsing and web searching platforms or applications and combine it into this large file spanning across multiple domains that describes millions of individual users. Let me just bring in Tamsin Shaw now, who's uh, just joining us from New York. Can you move this on to the politics of this? Because what uh, some of these companies are doing is now identifying voters and voter preferences and being able to tell political parties how people might vote. How reliable are their assessments, do you think? There's been a lot of scepticism about the claims made by companies like Cambridge Analytica to have very highly detailed psychographic portraits of every individual. Even if you don't have that, even if their data is only useful in the aggregate, it still gives you a great capacity to manipulate people and the way in which they behave, the way in which they vote. They're using this data in combination with methods derived from behavioural science that are targeting people's underlying motivations, their emotions. They're not using it in order to inform people, which, of course, it could be used for if you have a highly a highly detailed portrait of the individuals you're trying to reach. You could use that for the good to try to inform people about issues that are relevant to their lives, but in fact it's generally being used in this more manipulative way, often unconsciously, so people don't know that they're being targeted, they don't know that they're being emotionally manipulated, and I think that is very, very worrying for any democratic system. Okay, and, and that's another issue we'll come back to, as to whether it's manipulation or persuasion or whether where the line is drawn and so on, so that's another interesting issue. Uh, let's just go to Greg Beals and you, I guess, as a head of strategy at a major British political party, were approached by companies saying, look, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this. Uh, what did they pitch to you? Yeah, well, it's worth saying that political parties, political campaigns have always used data and information to make judgments about strategy, the voters they speak to, the kinds of messages those voters are susceptible to. That is part of what being a successful campaign political operation involves, even down to, I mean, the most simple but incredibly powerful version of that is political parties will put tellers outside of polling stations. So when you go and cast your vote and you come out, you will give those tellers the number, uh, your voter number, and they'll then know whether or not someone who might be a supporter of theirs has voted. 
and late in the day they can make an effort to reach the people who hadn't voted. Incredibly important. It's important for driving up turnout in elections and it's important for any campaign that I've ever worked on that's been successful. So data has always been used by campaigns and by political parties, and I think it's, inc it's incredibly important. The thing that's changing, and it's changing for politics and much more widely, is the sheer sum of available data and the ability to use that data to then make statistical probabilistic models which allow you to predict other things about people's behaviour that you don't actually have data on. And that is, in essence, the, so the sort of product that these new companies are beginning to offer to political parties, to businesses, to others. It's the ability to take large amounts of data, which they can hold perfectly lawfully and within defined rights of access to data, but then use that to make statistical judgments about people or groups of people that go beyond that data and which might be helpful to campaigns or other organisations. Right, and, and let's get an example of that now, because uh, Alexander Nix runs Cambridge Analytica. I should say we did ask them to come onto the programme, and they said no. But here is a clip of him talking about how he was able to target voters, relevant voters for Trump, in the last American election. Wisconsin is a state that is traditionally a very safe Democrat seat. So much so that the Clinton campaign never visited Wisconsin once in the entire election. But we were able to use data to identify that there was very large quantities of persuadable voters there that could be influenced to vote for the Trump campaign. And so much so, the Trump campaign had five rallies there. Those five rallies probably gave Trump contact with some 60 or 70,000 voters. And when you think that this state was won by a margin of only 50,000 voters, that gives you some understanding of how powerful this data is. Greg Beals, as someone who, who worked on precisely these kind of issues for, for a political party, how big a deal is it to get... I mean, all they're really doing is telling you who the floating voters are, right? Who the persuadable voters are. Well, I think they would say they're doing a number of different things. The first one is identifying who the floating voters are, who the people who are open to persuasion. The second is they would say they're identifying some of the values or attitudes that those voters have that you can use as the basis of your communication to them. And then the third is many of them will say they'll actually advise you on what to say. I'm very sceptical that they as companies have, at least in, in the political world, have much to bring in that last area, because I think in the end politics is about communicating what you believe and what you stand for, and you're not going to... Steady gonna get, on. Uh, yeah, quite. <laughs> and and you're, just, you're just not going to get that from some you know, company that's well, well, let, let, let's your get... data. What I do think is that in the past, political movements have tended to rely on a model which says, if people voted for us in the past, they'll probably vote for us again. That is the sort of, certainly in Britain, I don't just mean the Labour Party, all political parties in Britain, that's the, the real way that they've identified the voters that they want to speak to. Now, that actually in society is breaking down a bit. That kind of loyalty is breaking down. And therefore, we do actually need new ways of finding who are the voters who are, are undecided, who haven't made their minds up yet. Michael Koshitsky, I want to bring you in here because we've got to sort of stage one of this, which is that these techniques, and it's not just that company, there are other companies doing it, can probably, with a pretty good degree of accuracy, work out who is an uncertain voter or a fluid voter. Uh, the next stage is to work out how you might go about persuading that voter, so what sort of personality they have and how they might be persuadable. And you've been working on techniques which help pin down people's attitudes and personalities, haven't you? 
yes, that's, uh, that's exactly what those companies are doing. So the first stage is to try to understand the psychological profile of a given voter uh, at as much detail as, as possible. Now, knowing someone's psychological traits, and this is pretty intuitive, and we kind of all intuitively understand that, even if we are not psychologists, is that knowing someone's psychological traits allows us to find ways of convincing them or influencing them or manipulating them more successfully. So now, not only a company like that can tell you, look, this is a group of voters that would potentially be willing to change their mind about a given issue, but also those are the psychological traits and not on a group level, but on an actual individual level. Those are psychological traits of those individuals. So this is the way in which you could try to approach them to change their mind. And so can you give me, can you give me an example, Michael? Because it's quite abstract, this. So, so can you just give us a, a group of voters, a sort of a, a small group who have certain psychological profile and how you would go about uh, you know, getting them to change their mind? One of the psychological traits that is uh, being used in um, adjusting the message, tailoring the message to the uh, given individual is agreeableness. So how agreeable and avoiding conflict people are versus assertive and disagreeable. Now, if you are talking to an agreeable voter, voter that puts a lot of pressure on not causing conflict conflict and living in agreement with other people, you want to talk to those guys about how your campaign, your, your politician, your candidate is going to be bridging uh, divides and uh, bringing unity to your community and other communities out there. If you talk to a disagreeable voter, you can talk about exactly the same issues and exactly the same politician, yet stress a bit more how it goes against what the establishment is proposing at the moment or what competition of a given politician are, are doing at the moment. Yes, that's a very interesting example. Tamsin Shaw, what do you make of that? Um, yes, I think that is very interesting. And I think that the personality tests are certainly playing a role. And one of the things that's interesting about it is just it's a very different way to treat the electorate. You're not thinking about them as informed people who are educated on the issues and aware of their own interests and trying to appeal to them in a rational way about how to maximise both their interests and their values politically. You're thinking about them as potentially manipulable subjects whose personality traits make them vulnerable to particular kinds of persuasion. Yeah, I'm not sure about this idea that we should go straight to the, the, the idea of manipulation. I mean, clearly, in politics, it is possible for people to use messages and stories and facts that are intended to manipulate voters. I mean, that, that's possible. Some people do it. It's, it's bad practice. And like everyone that's engaged in politics needs to be working against it. I'm not sure, though, that moving away from just understanding people as rational decision makers necessitates thinking about your communications as manipulation. I don't really think that is the case. I mean... For most political parties that are trying to persuade people of their case, just giving people facts, just giving people information, although it's an important part of the task, is probably not 
enough. Exactly. So you've been manipulating people for decades. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Birgitta, yeah. Yeah, I just totally disagree. I have uh, helped co-create two political movements in Iceland that have uh, gained seats in the parliament in the last eight years. And we certainly did not uh, treat our potential voters as uh, consumers, but rather try to find ways to empower them. I find this whole idea to move into the voters market like it is a brand new market to sell a new product, uh, because this is exactly the the same talk you would hear at advertising agencies uh, in the past and, and in the now. So that's one ethical aspect of it that I find to be a little bit or actually appalling, because we have to understand that we are at a stage where democracy is at a very dangerous crossroads. There is a, a growing distrust towards uh, the democratic institutions. And I wonder why companies like the uh, company that claims to be able to profile people in this way and, and gain so much success, why did they not manage to inspire young people to come and vote? I think that... Well, well uh, maybe, maybe they didn't want to. Maybe they wanted to discourage them from voting. This is like, if, if I may say so, I mean, if you look at trends everywhere... Young people are not coming to vote, and it was the same thing in Iceland, and there was no such uh, databases used to try to attract voters here. So I think that is a much bigger problem. Let's let's have uh, Greg come back, and then we can hear. I agree with you a lot that actually treating voters as consumers is a big mistake. I don't think it's effective, and I don't think it's the right way to conduct a, a democracy. I actually think most people, most people, not everybody, but most people are making a judgment about who they vote for on the basis of their values. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not an, an advocate for these companies or a representative of these companies, but I think anything that helps politicians start to understand the values that people are using when they make judgments at elections is probably a helpful thing for them. And I think that being able to understand why people are voting the way they're voting, including when they're not voting for me, for us, for my party, for my causes, is important because I think it's a responsibility of us to, to work out how to persuade them to vote for us. I mean, I think that's how a democracy works. Okay. So I'm, so I'm yeah. loathe to turn away a, 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 a sort of tool that I think can be used for good. Terms ensure. I think there is a line that you can cross, though, in manipulating people emotionally. Of course, people are moved by their emotions to think about issues in a particular way or to vote in a particular way. But if you show somebody a TV ad that manipulates their emotions by showing them, you know, some struggling Syrian immigrant children for whom people feel sympathy, it's emotionally manipulative in a way that people can reflect on and they're aware that it is intended to manipulate their emotions. But what these companies are doing with their online strategies is targeting people without even their knowledge that that is going on. They're using emotional priming effects, which people can't even reflect on. So Matthew Ozkowski, who is the head of product at Cambridge Analytica, describes his job as being a product specialist that focuses on building tools and strategies that better connect people with their underlying behaviours and motivations. That is an attitude to people that I find very worrying, that you know their behaviours and motivations 
better than they do and you're trying to connect people with that aspect of themselves. And then he says that he spends most of his time trying to figure out what behavioural and emotional triggers move individuals to action and how to harness that energy online. And we know from the big social media companies that it's possible to persuade people online in ways that they're simply unaware of. For example, the Facebook experiment in 2012, where they bombarded some people with very negative posts to see if it would affect the negativity of their own posts and other people with positive ones, and discovered that it does have a powerful effect. And none of the 700,000 people involved in that study were aware that that was being done to them. So none of them could reflect critically on the process by which they were being manipulated and that's simply not been true of radio advertising or tv or posters or whatever we've done in the past michael kashinsky can you come back on that is there a new level of manipulation going on so first of all i do not believe there is a new level of manipulation going on and if we are going to be ideological here then of course if you hear that people working for the party that you may not agree with, uh, talking about inspiring people to action and uh, building on the, on the dreams or responding to the fears, it all sounds terrible. But it doesn't sound terrible because it has not been happening in the past. It just sounds terrible because it's the person that works for, for people that you disagree with is saying so. No, no, that's not Tamsin's point at all. I mean, she's saying there's a difference between... Yeah, from ancient Rome, people have been given emotional speeches and manipulating you in a way. But there's a difference between that and secretly gathering data on you and using it to press your buttons in a way that you don't know when it's happening to you on your social media feeds and make you behave in ways that you wouldn't particularly want to behave. Sure, I think that one thing that really um, is a common denominator of all of the people on this panel here is that we're all worried about what's happening and where we are going. But... Being worried does not mean that uh, we should be overlooking certain kind of simple facts. One is that we can agree here that certain courses of action are not desirable, yet if this is what moves voters to get out of their houses and go and vote, even if we agree that a certain set of parties will not be using such techniques, the other parties that are using such techniques will be gaining traction, as we have seen in recent uh, elections. So kind of our assessment of what's good and what's bad has little influence, it seems, uh, on other people. Also, I think that, in fact, just adjusting your political communication to match the profile of a given voter, to match their interests, fears, their dreams, their personality, is in fact in many ways a positive thing, a thing that can be used for improvement of democracy and uh, and voter engagement. If you are being faced with the information that inspires you, it's interesting to you, then you'll be more interested in politics. It will increase the turnout of, of voters in the, uh, in the election. And I think this is in the long term a great thing uh, for democracy. Now, the problem is that the same technique that can be used you to inspire to go to vote can be also used to inspire you to not go to vote and stay at home, basically discourage you from voting. Everyone would agree, I guess, that trying to discourage people from voting 
is not the right thing to do. You're listening to NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones and we're discussing this week the latest techniques in political campaigning and advertising, big data and micro-targeting. And our panel, we've got Michael Kaczynski from the Stanford Business School, Birgitta Jonsdottir, an MP in Iceland, Tamsin Shaw from New York University and Greg Beals, who used to be with the Labour Party as a strategist here in the UK and is now in the private sector. So, uh, Tamsin Shaw, I just wanted to ask you about something I know you've written about, which is priming techniques, which is taking this on what we've just been hearing earlier in the programme about the sort of methods you can use to make people behave in ways that they may not sort of be fully conscious they're behaving in. Tell us about priming techniques. Well, priming techniques are where you influence somebody's judgment by creating a certain emotional attitude in them. So it could be just simply flashing a smiley face at them, which they may or may not be unaware of, and making them feel in a more positive mood. But there are a lot of ways of doing that, or you can remind people subtly of their mortality and that supposedly makes people more conservative in their judgments. The science behind this has turned out to be quite shaky and a lot of the studies that established priming as a behavioural method have in fact not been replicated. It's been one of the weakest areas of behavioural science. But those are the techniques that people are trying to use in order to influence people's judgments. And they're largely the kind of techniques that would go unnoticed by the people that they're being used on and that I think is the worrying aspect of them. But we can all we can all sort of breathe a sigh of relief that it doesn't work. Well, if you are manipulating people emotionally, I think we all know that there's pretty good intuitive sense that everybody has of how to do that. So even if the science isn't really credible, Once you decide that's the way you want to approach these kind of issues and you do so with all of the kudos of behavioural science in which, of course, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize, it's much more easily easy for people to accept those kind of methods, even if what you're really doing is manipulating people's beliefs and their judgments in very old-fashioned ways, by telling them half-truths or by appealing directly to their unconscious motivations or their emotions. Birgitta Jonsdottir, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but is there a contradiction in your approach in saying that these things are very worrying and that we should be very aware of them and so on, and yet saying you're having great success by completely rejecting them and just putting straightforward messaging to the electorate who then vote for you? Is, Is there a contradiction there? It goes against everything that we have been specialising in when it comes to uh, digital privacy and that uh, our sort of digital persona is treated like the rest of us uh, with the same uh, regard to uh, legislation. And I find it very interesting to see how this is going to develop because I guess if one party is using this, all of the parties will be using it. So it's going to be slightly confusing for the people that are going to be voting if they're going to be bombarded with uh, psychological signaling constantly. I think that in general, people will be moving away from these platforms that are bombarding them. And I have sensed uh, within my community that a lot of people are are moving away from Facebook because uh, they're just so sick of being inside this bubble that Facebook has created for them. So I think uh, we're just at the beginning of something and and we do need to 
discuss the ethical aspects, but at the same time, we have to look at this in a holistic fashion because this is not a, a separate thing. This is a part of a much bigger debate about where our democracies are heading. I very much agree with that sentiment. I mean, I, I think that the there's two big changes here. One's to do with the data that's being used to understand different groups of voters. But the other one that's going on in parallel at the same time is the number of points at which you as a voter or a consumer can be reached by comfort companies, political parties, because you know, it used to be that you could get a leaflet through the door, you might get a, an advert on television, certainly much less in Europe than you would get in the US, and you had a, a high degree of control over the points of contact that you had with the political process. What's changed with Facebook and the whole world of digital media is these points have become far more common, and that changes a number of things. It makes having a large amount of money a bigger advantage, I think, than it's going to be in the past, and I think that's going to be an issue for our democratic process. But it also means that we've probably got to educate people about how they can have more control over that process, and it, and it might be that the, you know, the regulators of elections should be setting some boundaries on how often voters can be uh, reached or spoken to through digital media, uh, whether or not you can blanket coverage someone's Facebook or digital adverts. Well, that's a good point, actually, because in, in, yeah. in the UK we have control of... Uh, yeah, there's quite a few tight control of TV because it's so powerful, and if social media is that powerful... That's right. I mean, social media is just... In terms of regulation, it's much harder to control it. But look, one of my experiences over the last few years is that... Political advertising, political communication has exploded online, partly because it is not regulated in the same way as, you know, certainly television. It's far less scrutinised. If you want to, campaigns can have four or five hundred different messages all being pushed out at once because you can have targeted messages to different audiences. And that produces issues for how journalists and the political process are holding political parties to account. Michael Kaczynski, I think you've said in the past that it is impossible to control social media. Is that, is that your view? I do agree with Greg that it's very difficult bordering on impossible. There are no borders on the internet. This is very difficult to monitor as well uh, social media, whereas there's just few or few dozens of TV channels and it's conceivable that you can actually control what's happening there. Every single person has a different Facebook experience and then whichever app they're using, again, as those apps offer highly personalized experience, every single user would see a different thing. But it's also even impossible to check whether any of those channels developed a bias towards one or the other political option. Uh, in fact, as we know from what happened to Google and Facebook and other online platforms in the recent years, even the administrator of a given platform sometimes finds it difficult to detect whether the AI that is driving user experience, artificial intelligence mechanisms that are driving users' experience and customizing your Facebook newsfeed or your Google search results. So even administrators who are running those platforms have trouble deciding and monitoring whether those mechanisms are not developing bias and, let's say, uh, start showing you fake news, as it was the case last year with Facebook, or start convincing you that Jews are evil, as it has been a case with Google search engine last year. And not only those biases are difficult to spot, but there might be way more subtle biases out there that we might be subject to, but we wouldn't even notice that it's happening. 
but also they're very difficult to correct because those are very complicated machines that serve individually selected content to millions of people separately. And even if you're running it as an engineer that is responsible for its behavior, they find it very difficult to adjust and control the behavior of those platforms. I get the point. In terms of, I'd like you to listen to this and come back on, on this, because one way of controlling this is to, is to stop these companies gathering so much information in the first place. I mean, it, it won't do exactly what you're talking about, Michael, but it would reduce their power and their ability to uh, be pumping out messages to so many people on such a targeted basis. Now, in the United States, things are actually moving in the other way, because in April, yeah. uh, President Trump repealed uh, internet privacy rules passed last year under the Obama administration. The repeal bill uh, just got through narrowly in the House and Senate last month with critics accusing Republicans of selling their constituents' privacy. Uh, here's a Democratic congressman, Michael Capano from Massachusetts, with, a, with a, an impassioned speech on this. I have a simple question. What the heck are you thinking? What is in your mind? Why would you want to give out any of your personal information to a faceless corporation for the sole purpose of them selling it? Give me one good reason why Comcast should know what my mother's medical problems are. You know how they'd know? Because when I went to the doctor with her and they told me what it was, I had no clue what they were talking about. I came home and I searched it on the net. Just last week, I bought underwear on the internet. Why should you know what size I take? Or the color? Or any of that information? These companies are not going broke. That's not the situation. The internet is not in jeopardy. And yet, Comcast is going to get it. And what are they going to do with it? They're going to sell it to the underwear companies. Go out in the street, please. Leave Capitol Hill for five minutes. Go anywhere you want. Find three people on the street who think it's okay. And you can explain to them ROIs and the company has to make progress and we have to make money. Gentlemen's time You'll is expired. You'll lose that argument every single time, as you should. Gentlemen's time is expired. And I guarantee you, you won't find anybody. Gentlemen's time is expired. The gentleman from Colorado reserves. The gentleman from Texas. There we are. He was gaveled in the end. Uh, now, terms in short. I mean, he he does have a point there. That and I've seen uh, videos on YouTube where people are told just the rights of these companies to actually switch on your microphone on your iPhone when you don't know it, and apparently. You know, they can do that. And no one agrees with that. So th there is a sort of lack of knowledge of, of what, what rights we've given away. There is. And I think ever since the Snowden revelations, people have been incredibly concerned about organisations like the NSA without realising that there are all sorts of private companies that aren't subject even to the kinds of regulations that the NSA as part of the government are subject to. So private companies can gather enormous amounts of data. They can sell it on to any organizations, including government organizations. And there's just very little protection out there at all. And of course, under this administration, it's getting less and less. And, and, and Begeta John Zottier, you, you would uh, share those concerns? Absolutely. And I've been trying to raise awareness about the corporate aspect of data gathering for a long time because I felt that all the focus went on to the governmental institutions, which Snowden revealed to us. I find it to be highly disturbing that most legislators, uh, and I have worked a lot with uh, 
parliamentarians from all over the world, most of them are not aware of and do not have the technological understanding in order to pass laws that protect citizens. And so whenever there are parliamentarians like the one uh, from the US that we just heard that are trying to raise awareness, it is extremely important that we share that concern and that we find solutions. It is a responsibility both for uh, those that are in governance, but also for these companies to inform their users uh, about what sort of rights they're giving away. I had a very personal experience. I had the Department of Justice uh, request from Twitter to have all my uh, metadata handed over because of a fishing expedition in regard to my co-production of Collateral Murder, one of the first WikiLeaks uh, uh, sort of big leaks. And what I found out is that in the user agreement, I had signed on to agree on all further changes. And I had no awareness about that because nobody well, you, reads. You, you signed the agreement and it says any change we make, you've signed up to. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 Michael Kaczynski, you know, you made the point, and I think we all take the point, that it's very difficult for these social media companies to control very precisely with actually no bias at all, their news feeds and so on. But it is easy to pass legislation to say you can't gather all this information. Would that be a good thing? Well, that's true that it's easy to pass legislation, though, as you could hear in the sound bites, uh, there's no real appetite for uh, doing that, it seems, because obviously individuals don't spend much money on lobbying and big internet companies do. Well, can't MPs work it out for themselves that no one wants this? But, uh, well, uh, again, there's there's quite a few uh, studies recently show that while people are bothered by privacy, when you actually ask them to put a price tag on their own data, this price tag is usually pretty low, like in cents. Everyone is concerned, it seems, about privacy, but quite a few people don't really understand the risks uh, and disadvantages that uh, it brings to them. But I want to make a slightly broader point, which is that even if we somehow magically gave people control over data, there's still a lot that we want to make public. I want my website to be read by everyone on the web. I want my Twitter to be followed by people out there. I want this conversation here to be publicly available to people to listen to. And now what is worrying, and I don't think that people really see that, is that this is already more than enough information for a good algorithm to infer our intimate traits, such as political views, intelligence, personality, religiosity, sexual orientation, uh, and so on. Just with what's out there, just, yeah, Greg. Well, I mean, I speak from the UK. We have relatively, compared to most of the world, tight restrictions on privacy of data. We benefit from those. So I'm conscious I'm sort of making this point from a position of having, you know, relatively strong rights in terms of the data, in terms of how it can be used when I'm, you know, when companies take it from me. But I think, I think, I think to my mind, this has to be a debate both about what data's can be taken but also about how it's used because because look there are clearly some aspects of data which people are are willing uh, to pass on for some purposes and not for others and you know in relation to politics this is about what political parties can legitimately use data for 
And it might be for some things and it might not be for others. I mean, in relation to the health service in Britain, there's now a big debate going on uh, in the UK about the ways in which anonymised data in the health service might be able to be used to improve decision-making. It might be one of the big advantages we have as a sort of as a uniform health service, an integrated health service that the NHS is. But obviously that's got to be done if that happens with an incredible amount of care in terms of protecting individual patients' privacy. Let, let, let me just ask you, as someone who worked with Tony Blair, and it relates to a point that someone made earlier that, you know, people are quite happy with this manipulation if it's in their favour, as it were. And there was this issue of nudging, where Tony Blair was, and, and Obama did the same thing, was trying to, in a way, manipulate people to do things like get pensions and vaccinations and whatever public policy goal they were trying to achieve. And it, people were more comfortable with it because they, they sort of agreed with the outcome, Right. Yeah, well, I mean, so I I actually worked on a very, very specific example of that, which was in the period in which we were trying to improve cleanliness in hospitals. And it was a big challenge to get people to wash their hands when they came into hospitals. And and actually quite a lot of what the NHS ended up using in order to get people to use alcohol gels and so on to wash, wash their hands, visitors, doctors nurses, clinical staff, in order to do that, were nudge-type techniques about the availability of cleaning, creating social norms, that no one goes into a hospital without cleaning their hands. When, in fact, of course, a lot of people did go into hospital without cleaning their hands, but that had to be established. But I think there's a broader question about whether that is transferable to elections. Even if you can nudge people and inspire them to go out and vote, which is what we've been talking about, there's an underlying attitude, which is that you just want people to go out and express their opinion um, in the same way as people express their opinions on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. And in fact, in a representative democracy, that's not what we should be encouraging Elections are about holding your elected officials accountable and that requires political information and understanding and it requires thinking about how they can be held accountable in democratic elections. It's not not serving us well if people think that they just get to go to the polls and express themselves. And the resurgent populism that we're seeing in various parts of the world right now I think adopts precisely that idea that people just want to be heard, they want to express themselves, and in fact that's never what representative democracy has been about. Michael Kaczynski. Well, I completely agree with Tamsin, and I actually agree with everyone else on this panel. So that's not possible. They've been, everyone's been disagreeing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I completely... <laughs> uh, but, but my problem is that we kind of diagnosed here how the world should operate and what we would like to see out there happening. But the problem is that many of those things, in my opinion and in my intuition, tells me are completely not possible. Like we see that people are losing control over their data as we go forward, not gaining it. And technology, beautiful, shiny technologies we're developing are not really making our data safer, quite the opposite. So what I think we should start talking about is that maybe privacy is really a lost cause. And I want to really encourage you to see it in this way. Why? Because it might be a distraction talking about how to protect our data, how to legislate to give people control over their data. This might be just a distraction given that now algorithms are becoming more and more powerful. We are signing off increasing amount of our data to companies and institutions Why? Because it's difficult not to, and also because it's so convenient. And convenience, you know, it's just convincing people to 
do things that they would otherwise not do. No, I mean, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. The reason is because we've got politicians who've been bought off by these huge corporations to pass legislation which allows them to take all the data, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look, but just let me come back to my previous point, which is that even if you gave people full control over their data, there's still a lot that they want to share. And this is already enough for the algorithms to reveal those people intimate traits. Like, again, I want my Twitter to be read by people. I don't want to keep it private, which basically brings me to a complete exposure here. So I like to think about the privacy as a tornado. Look, I don't don't like tornadoes. I would make tornadoes illegal today and give everyone rights to opt out from being hit by the tornado but it won't stop the tornado of the end of privacy coming. We basically are just going to lose it. Very fatalistic account. OK, so, so c- can we just ask everyone, as, as, uh, with all your knowledge of this, as we uh, look ahead, I mean, it is changing fast, this, and you know, some people are saying that these companies are overclaiming what they can do, uh, but nonetheless, the trend is there. So what's going to be happening in 15 years' time, Greg Beals, when you're you know, a grand uh, sort of strategist for the Labour Party? Oh, blimey. I think big data is sort of here to stay and it will be informing the way everybody works. I think we'll be more comfortable with it and there will be restrictions on how it can be used and they might be specific to different industries, so politics might be a bit different. That said, I actually think there is some considerable opportunity for this data to help politicians, political parties to understand the electorate, understand why people vote, understand what they're looking for in their politicians. And so I'm, I'm at the optimistic end of the spectrum. This might, this might actually be a useful tool for people who are trying to engage people, engage young people in the voting process and govern well in, in a democratic system. Tamsin, there's an upside. There may be an upside. It may help um, connect political parties with voters that they haven't been able to connect with before. But I don't know that gathering more and more information about the personalities of those voters is going to help anybody hold politicians accountable for what they're doing in the world. I think the optimistic view of the future might be that there is legislation that helps to rein in that tendency rather than to put it to other users. And Tamsin, you've been studying uh, and writing about all this behavioural psychology and so on, and it's a, it's a fast-moving and fascinating field. Where's it going to be in 15 years? How much more understanding of people's behaviour and, and you know, how you can predict their behaviour and change their behaviour will there be? There is a core of behavioural science that has replicated experimentally. I think that There will be further attempts at replication and you won't have the same kind of problems with the law of small numbers that you extrapolate from very studies involving small numbers to much larger conclusions. But I don't know that it will end up really identifying systematic, non-rational biases that everybody holds. I think that what we'll find is that human behaviour is just much more unpredictable than that and human attitudes and emotions are inherently unpredictable and that the idea that you can sort of unlock the code and then hack into it is just going to become more obsolete. Birgitta, we've been discussing this really mainly in relation to democracies. It is an interesting thought as to where, if this this technology sort of um, cascades down into dictatorships, what they can do with it. That's one thing that I'm very worried about. And I did warn, I was uh, speaking at the Munich Security Conference uh, 
year and a half ago or so, and I was warning about some authoritarian figure like Donald Trump would have access to all this data that's being gathered by both the Secret Service and how they've been able to get back doors into all the platforms that we use on an everyday basis. And I'm worried that uh, we simply are not aware of what sort of impact this could have. Let's say that um, you want to find out all the Muslims in this particular neighborhood or all the immigrants or everybody that is potentially going to be a cancer patient uh, or everybody that might be potentially homosexual. This is already possible. And in the wrong hands, it's extremely dangerous. So uh, my futuristic view would be if we could use this technology, because this technology is here, and, and by the way, my AI on uh, Facebook really sucks. Uh, it's just no way for that uh, uh, algorithm to figure me out and, and push stuff towards me that I find to be interesting, because I'd like to see what people that have uh, that are you know not like-minded are thinking. <laughs> um, so I think if we can use this to inspire people to hold us, those that are uh, representing them more accountable, if we can use this in order to facilitate more direct democracy, then, you know, I would like to live in that type of future. Yeah. And and Michael Kaczynski, you're closely involved in the field. Where do you see it in, in 15 years? Well, I think that we'll be seeing more and more of artificial intelligence taking over from humans in trying to influence the voters, the customers, as humans in general. So now we were talking a lot about how companies may use the knowledge of your intimate traits to try to influence you. But basically what's going to happen going forward is that humans won't be able to do it, would be ever doing it uh, anymore. It will be artificial intelligence trying to optimize the messaging. And Bridget mentioned that AI is not really doing a great job marketing on her Facebook uh, newsfeed. But we have to remember that actually, first of all, those companies are very often trying to make sure that customers don't feel like the AI knows them too well, and they would drop deliberately an advert that is not very well targeted just to convince you that uh, they don't know you so well. How, how reassuring. I think I have never bought anything through targeted uh, marketing towards me. Uh, well, look, the, the individual fights on, Big Eater. Thank you for your sort of a defiance of the system. And uh, Michael Kaczynski, thank you. And Tamsin Shaw and Greg Beals here in London. As I say, if you want to catch these programmes on a more permanent basis, then the way to do it is through the podcast, the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. One hour of discussion on a single topic every week. Do get in touch, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet at BBC NH Extra. But from our excellent panel on this fascinating topic, that's it for this week. So from Owen Bennett Jones here in London, goodbye.